Good morning. I want to say a massive thank you to, uh, to, to Emma and all the mission team for, um, for the presentation this morning. It's, it's so good to hear about these projects, this amazing work that's going on throughout the world and people who are, who are serving God in such a, such a real and amazing way. And it's such a privilege as well that we've got an opportunity to join with them in that work, to contribute to it and show them um, the support that we can show them. So, so thank you all, um, all the mission team, for your um, presentations this morning and... I've got my green counter and I'm still weighing up which pot it's going to go in, but um, it's, it's really good. So thank you for that. So this morning um, is, is the, the fourth and final part of this um, series we've been doing on grace. And grace is one of those subjects that uh, you always sort of think, there's so much more to learn, there's so much more to explore. And we will come back to it inevitably because everything that we do as a church, everything that we do as Christian brothers and sisters should be done in a spirit of grace. And if that's going to become a truth, then we really need regular reminders of what grace is. I really want grace to become a word that we share, that we hear a lot, that is on our lips in this church and out in the community as well. Something which we talk about, and when we, when, we, when we use the word, we all know exactly what we mean, because we regularly talk about it together. Before we go any further, some of you have probably been sitting there thinking, whoever did the flowers this week is rubbish. <laughs> but you see, um, I, I decided I wanted to bring some flowers this week. Now, I'm, I'll, I'll put it out there. You know, flowers for me, they, they grow in a garden. They're, they're, I don't know anything about them. Um, they're nice, but about as far as it goes. Um, so um, I, said to Joe, I said to Joe yesterday, can we get a nice big bunch of flowers? And she said, why? She's not used to me buying flowers, you see. Um, and I said, well, I want to take them to church. And she said, okay, yeah. She said, well, can't you take the daffodils I bought? And I said, oh, they're just daffodils. She said, they're my favourite flowers. I said, are they? <laughs> only, only taken 16 years. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we have these beautiful daffodils, and, um, and we brought them along. What I would like you to do, this is going to sound slightly odd, but, but bear with me on this. What I'd like to do is I'm just going to, I'm just going to give this to Alan here. And um, what I'm asking is, if, if you're comfortable doing it, if you're not, then just, you know, that's fine. But if you're comfortable, I'd like as many people as possible to pass this round, this daffodil. And normally if someone gives a flower, if you're anything like me, then you think, oh, I don't really know. It's like holding a baby. You think, I don't really know what to do with it. Um, uh, you know, it's very delicate, very fragile. It's, it's all very beautiful, but I'd rather see it in a garden than, than be trusted with it. But this time, you've got license to do what you like with it. I want you to touch the petals and feel how delicate and soft they are. So poke your fingers into the bit and see the, the, the yellow stuff that comes off the, um, the, the pollen. Um, <laughs> I've got all the lingo. Um, just, just do what you like with it. And at the end, as this gets passed round during the sermon, at the end of it, wherever it is, um, I, I, I'll take it back and we just want to see um, what this beautiful thing looks like when it has gone on this journey around the church. Um, if anyone from the balcony wants to, wants to come down and take it to be shared up there, then please do. You're welcome to, 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 to um, join in the, the, the flower um, investigation. But I'm going to give it to Alan and... Um, We'll see how far around the church it gets during 
today's sermon. But you see, all will come clear on the flower front. But grace, grace is this word I said last week. It's, it's, if you imagine it as a smoothie, you take all the elements of the fruit of the Spirit and then you add in um, uh, forgiveness, you add in mercy, you add in all the, the other good bits that God tells us that, that we, we, should, we should seek to practice in our lives. Then you, you, you mash them all together and that thing, that thing that we have is grace. Grace is the, the cement that holds together all the different bricks of our faith. We can, have, we can be absolutely certain of our doctrine and, and we, can, we can know what we think about, about creation and salvation and the end times and all the rest of it. And we can have all these blocks firmly together. But like a wall that's, of bricks that's just built up with no cement, if someone comes up to that wall and kicks it, it's just going to collapse. And if our faith isn't, isn't cemented by grace, then someone comes and kicks it, and it's likely to collapse. And so grace is so, so, so important. It's important that we, as a church, often speak about grace. So today we're going to look at Jesus. It's always a good place to start, isn't it? We're going to look at Jesus, and we're going to look at two characters that Jesus speaks to. Two very familiar characters. One of them, you'll hear the name and you'll think, oh yeah, I know, I, I know that person, I'm comfortable with that person, he's good. And another, you'll hear the name and you'll think, hmm, yeah, I know that person, I'm familiar with that person. He's not good. He's not good. Jesus spoke to both these people. And today we're going to look at their reaction to Jesus' grace and how we can react to Jesus' grace. We're going to talk about sorrow. We're going to talk about sadness. And we're going to talk about Jesus in that process. So, the first passage we're looking at is John chapter 13. We see Jesus sitting with his, his disciples. He's gathered them together and they are beginning their conversation at the Passover meal. Jesus knows that in a very short time he's going to be betrayed and eventually crucified. But Jesus is sitting at table with his disciples. And in John chapter 13, verse 21, it says, Jesus has been, has been talking to his disciples, and it says, after he'd said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in a dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. The moment where Jesus foretells the betrayal. And we see Judas, we imagine him sort of slinking out of the room, 
There's been what I was imagining must have been quite a dramatic moment when, when Jesus hands him the bread. When Jesus says to him as he's getting up to, to leave, he said, go. And I reckon there was eye contact. And I reckon that as Jesus, Jesus' eyes pierced Judas, I reckon Judas suddenly felt that moment of, what have I done? He knows. But Judas went through with it. And so this is a dramatic moment. This is a big, this is a big moment. Jesus could, of course, have, have picked up the, the carving knife or whatever was on the table and, and, and put an end to it there and then. Judas would never have made it that far. Jesus would never have been identified in Gethsemane. Or Jesus could have said to the other 11 disciples, hey, listen, chaps, this is what's going to happen. Deck him. Judas could have got a massive hiding and then suddenly been shipped off somewhere never to set foot in Jerusalem again. Jesus had the option. But instead, what you're about to do, do quickly. That was Jesus' last words to Judas. The next passage also comes from John 13. We read in verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, I cannot, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me Three times. So Jesus is sitting there, and two of his disciples, these, these, these friends who have, have been with him through thick and thin, he's taught them, he's shared with them, he's performed healing and miracles in their, in their presence. They've, they've, they've felt his power, they've recognized who he is. These really, really close friends of his, and suddenly one of them gets up to leave the table, and Jesus knows full well that he's going to seal see this death sentence, and the other one swears blindly that he'll follow him to death, and Jesus knows full well that in a matter of hours he would have disowned him three times, abandoning Jesus himself to death. I don't know about you, but if I was sitting amongst a group of friends, knowing full well that two of them were on the cusp of betraying me, I don't think I'd show quite so much grace as, as Jesus shows. I think I'd be furious. I think I'd really struggle to, to eat anything. And I'd probably be sitting there stewing, watching them, thinking, what can I do to stop this? You see, I'd be wanting revenge even before they had done anything to me. And that's because... It pains me to say it, but I'm not like Jesus. And I'm guessing I'm probably not alone in this room in, in feeling that. When we're brutally honest with ourselves, our own reaction to, to other people when they hurt us, when they, when they betray us, we immediately react in a, world, in a way that the world demands rather than the way that the gospel demands. As we live our Christian lives, of course, we must try to become more Christ-like in our daily walk. Every experience should shape us. We should reflect on ourselves and recognize the things that we can do to make ourselves more Christ-like. 
We'll never get there. We'll never become perfectly Christ-like. Of course we won't. But we should never stop trying. It was, um, it was Mahatma Gandhi who said, when he was asked about the Christian faith, he said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That's a statement that's really stuck in my mind. I think it's, I think it's so powerful and it reveals so much. We can never stop growing. We can never stop learning. And we can never stop following Jesus. And so... That's what we read in John's Gospel. In Matthew 27, in Matthew 27, we see Judas again. Now, Judas has gone off to the chief priests and he's taken the 30 pieces of silver. He's gone and met Jesus and greeted him with a kiss. Jesus has been arrested, and at this point, Jesus is being tried or tortured. And Judas has he suddenly realized what he's done. He suddenly had that moment where he thinks, I can't believe, I can't believe what I've done. How can I change this? How can I put it right? What can I do? After years and years and years of, of, well, three years of of walking with Jesus, of following him, of hearing about the importance of, of repentance and coming before the Father, Judas doesn't do that. Judas doesn't do that. He doesn't come before the Father and and pray for repentance, ask for God's forgiveness, acknowledge his sin. Instead, we read, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money in the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. You see what happens here? If we don't come before God when we get things wrong, when we fail either to show grace or when we betray somebody, when we make a mistake, when we get it wrong, if we don't come before God with those things, then we can never truly be put right. Judas tries to do it himself. He realizes Jesus has been condemned. This is, this is getting out of hand. He suddenly remembered what it was that he first saw in Jesus that made him want to follow him. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing there was a sudden flood of emotion, sorrow, regret, remorse. And of course, regret is a, is a terrible thing to feel because often we can't do anything to put right what's been done wrong. And Judas doesn't come before God. He comes, he comes into the temple. He tries to do it himself. He goes back to the, the priests and, and says, look, I, 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 was, I got this wrong. We need to undo what's been done. And they say, well, it's too late, mate. You've, you've fallen into our trap. You've done exactly what we wanted you to do, and you've done it beautifully. You've got your money, go. There's no way he can undo what's been done. He recognizes Jesus' innocence He recognizes that Jesus is faultless. And he also recognizes that he is the one who is responsible for a faultless, innocent man being condemned. He throws the money into the temple, even throwing the money into the temple, trying to separate himself from the the recompense that he'd received, throwing that away, he still can't undo it. 
It's not a case of, well, I've put the money back, therefore Jesus needs to be returned. It doesn't work like that. Judas tries to take matters into his own hands. And it simply doesn't work. In Luke's Gospel, we see Peter again. Peter has, has been with Jesus. He stayed with him for the meal. Then they went to Gethsemane. They've prayed. And then the armed group come and arrest Jesus. Peter tries to lash out. Jesus stops him. And, and then Peter has sort of followed Jesus at a distance. Just before this reading on the screen, we read that Peter was following at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. This was the crowd outside the courts waiting to find out what was going to happen. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked at him closely and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them. Man, I'm not replied Peter. About an hour later, another asserted, definitely, this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. I don't know about you, but I don't often cry. I find it quite a difficult thing to do. And some people do it very freely and some don't. There's no right or wrong. But I always find it very moving when someone responds to something with tears. When someone we love dies. We can't control the tears. When someone hurts and upsets us, Sometimes the tears of, of, of anger or disappointment or frustration just come out. Sometimes when we're just so happy, we just, we just cannot it contain the joy and excitement and it comes out, leaking out of our eyes. <clears throat> tears really show what's going on in someone's heart, someone's soul. Not exclusively, as I say, I can feel a deep emotion but not have the, the physical response, but here... Peter wept bitterly because he realizes that Jesus was exactly right. He realizes that Jesus had, had seen in Peter, despite Peter's bravado of, I'll follow you to the grave, I'll lay down my life for you. I'm sorry, but you won't. I'm sorry, you, you, you love me, but not to that point. But you see, in John 14, straight after straight after Judas has gone out to betray Jesus and straight after, after Peter has, has made this statement and been told, you, you, you don't, you're, you're not as devoted as you think you might be. In John 14, Jesus' first words in that chapter, which are a continuation of that conversation, having just told Peter, you will betray me three times, he says, do not be afraid. 
And he goes on to explain that I'm going to my father's house to prepare a room for you. In other words, the message is that even when we let Jesus down, which he knows that we will, it doesn't mean that we're separated from Jesus because of the grace that Jesus shows us. It's a wonderful moment. It's a wonderful teaching. But going back to... Going back to... Peter and Judas and their differing reactions. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we read these words from Paul. And it's a very interesting study on sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. You see, Peter repents. He weeps bitterly. He doesn't try and undo things. He repents in his heart. He is so sorrowful. And he, comes to, he sees Jesus. They have this moment of eye contact. And it just brings tears to his eyes because he sees the man that he loves so much and he realizes that he's let him down. And that's such a painful thing for him to experience. Judas went running back to the temple. I want to, I want to distance myself from those 30 pieces of silver. I want to tell them, you've got to undo it. You've got to stop it. But there's no sort of moment where where he goes to Jesus. We must go to Jesus. Sometimes it's right to go out into the world and to put put wrongs right and say to people, I'm I'm so sorry, or or, we've got to stop this thing that I started. Sometimes that's but we've got to come to God first. We've got to bring ourselves before God. Godly sorrow, this, this acknowledgement before God of the things that we get wrong, of the sin that we commit, Godly sorrow brings repentance because God gives us an opportunity to repent. Repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. No regret, just a feeling of joy and warmth and and celebration at the grace of God. But worldly sorrow, Paul tells us, bluntly brings death. You see, the, the, the difference that we see in Peter and in Judas. We see the godly sorrow in Peter that leads to repentance. We see the the worldly sorrow in Judas that brings death. In John's Gospel, we have that amazing closing scene the miraculous catch of fish, when Peter and other disciples have gone back to fishing. And they're in a boat one morning, and along the beach walks this figure. And he shouts out to them, you caught anything? Which is the most annoying thing that anyone can ask when you've been fishing for ages and caught nothing. Believe me, I know. And they say, no. Try the other side of the boat. What a, that's just ridiculous advice. Absolutely. What difference is it going to make? They must have been fuming. Then they recognize who it is that they're talking to. They recognize. And and while the others are putting in the nets and putting them, and being obedient, putting them down the other side, Peter is, is grabbing his cloak and diving into the water, the most undignified act you can imagine, and swimming his way to the shore because he is so desperate. He is so desperate to get back to Jesus. The Jesus that last time he saw was, was, was looking at him and leaving Peter in tears because 
He knew that he'd let him down. And suddenly Peter sees him again and he cannot contain himself. And it is a beautiful and wonderful moment in Scripture. And then as they're, as they're eating fish over a fire, we read how Jesus doesn't say, told you, <laughs> three times, good work, laying down your life for me and all that, thanks mate. He doesn't do that. He says, Peter, do you love me? He gives Peter an opportunity to, to answer that, that, that question. Wouldn't it be a great thing? Jesus said, do you love me? Oh my goodness, yes, yes. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus says, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Take care of my sheep. Just to, just to be absolutely sure, do you love me? Jesus, Peter gets to the point, he's, all right, come on, look, you've asked me, this is the third time, seriously, it's going to be the same answer. Jesus says, feed my sheep. So in other words, when we repent, when we come back to Jesus, when we, when we put ourselves at his mercy, we receive his grace. And it is not a grace that condemns us. It's, it's, not, it's not a grace that, that reminds us of all of our faults and all of our sin and all of our wrongs. It's a grace that says, good, you're back. Do you love me? Yeah? You sure? Good. You're absolutely definite this time. Yeah? Good. Right. This is what you're going to do for me. Get out there and go and do it with my blessing and my love and my presence and my power. That's the Jesus that we follow. That is the grace that is such an amazing thing, which no matter how much studying or preaching or teaching or learning we do, we can never fully grasp the amazing concept of grace. It is such a powerful thing. I've got... Um, just as we finish up this morning, just to close off this series, I've got uh, some examples of people who have shown incredible measures of grace. So I'm just going to talk through these, and um, there's, a, there's a video at the end that we're going we're gonna to finish off with. And um, yeah, I just hope that these, these are helpful, and they probably demonstrate grace better than I can ever hope to. So Gordon Wilson. Anybody heard of Gordon Wilson? Yes, Kath. He certainly was, yes. Yes. At the late 1980s Remembrance Day Parade there was people gathered around a memorial and about 10 minutes before the remembrance at 11 o'clock the silence due to take place a huge bomb went off and a building collapsed and Many people were buried underneath it. There was people who lost their lives. There was many injuries. And um, Gordon Wilson was there with his daughter, who was, I think, six years old, if memory serves correctly. And they were both crushed by the rubble. And he was, he'd been standing there holding her hand. And they were both crushed under this rubble. And he was still holding her hand. And he could hear her. And the last words he heard her say were, Daddy, I love you so much. And she was squeezing, squeezing, squeezing his hand. And then the grip got looser and looser. And when the paramedics dug her out and got her into an ambulance, she was still alive, but she never regained consciousness and died shortly afterwards. And Gordon Wilson, he got out of the rubble and he was checked over and he, he survived. He had every right 
the world would tell us, to be angry, to be bitter, to want those killers brought to justice. But you know what he did? He was interviewed by the BBC and he, he expressed, he explained what had happened, told a story, and then he expressed how, how much he loves his daughter. He spoke about what a beautiful child she was, um, her hopes and aspirations, the things that she used to like to do. But he said, I bear no ill will to the men that planted that bomb. Tonight I will pray for them. And that interview, people say, did more to change hearts and minds and attitudes in the Northern Ireland conflict than decades of campaigning and political speech and petition had done. Because that was grace. And grace is such a powerful thing that it changes hearts, even in the most complex of conflicts. That's Gordon Wilson. Now, this next one, recently, in the past five years, um, there was a man called Dr. Adam Towler, and he got a knock on his door one day. And he answered the door, and there was a man answered and just stabbed him nine times. Um, the, the, the man is mentally ill and it was just a completely unprovoked, frenzied attack. And Dr. Towler lay on his own doorstep, bleeding, um, convinced he was going to die. He managed to, he had his phone in his pocket or nearby, and he managed to phone 999, the ambulance turned up. His life was saved. And the, the attacker was, was, was caught. And in the trial, Dr. Towler said, I've got no ill will against this man. What happened, happened. Um, I just want him to get on with his life and me to get on with mine. I want him to get whatever help he needs and I just want to get on with my life. I bear him no ill will. And in the summing up, I thought it was really interesting, in the summing up, um, this is from a BBC report on it, um, Judge William Hart praised Dr. Adam Towler's response to the disturbing attack, saying, whether it is the effect of intellect or faith or kindness and understanding, I don't know. If it is the consequence of intellect, I admire it. If it is the consequence of faith... I envy it. Now, I don't know if Dr. Towler is a Christian or not. That's not the point I'm making here. The point I'm making is that that is an act of grace. And if this is, an act, if this is a consequence of faith, I envy it. Faith should be something that people look at us and see, something so powerful and so transforming that they envy it. That's when we talk about making Jesus more attractive. That's what we mean. Someone looks at us and thinks, I wish I could deal with that situation the way they have. I wish I had that strength. I wish I could have that, that, that self-control, that dignity. Wow. And of course, it's not us that are doing it. It's Jesus. It's Jesus' grace. And it's a powerful thing. And people do envy it when it's displayed in the world. Some of you may have heard of the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was... Um, he was an activist um, during the Second World War. Um, he, was, he was German, and um, he was also a, a spy, um, but he was also one of the, the 20th century's great theologians. Fantastic man, fantastic writer. And he eventually was, um, was, was 
captured by the Nazis and, and executed. And as he went to his execution, his guard apparently said to him, um, for you, Dr. Bonhoeffer, this is the end. And Bonhoeffer said, for you it might be the end, for me, this is the beginning. But here is a statement from Bonhoeffer. Um, it's a little bit wordy, apologies for that. But uh, actually, no, I don't make apologies for that at all. It's a great statement. Um, the only way to overcome evil is to let it run itself to, to a standstill because it does not find the resistance it's looking for. Resistance merely creates further evil and adds fuel to the flames. But when evil meets no oppression and encounters no obstacle, but only patient endurance, its sting is drawn. And at last, it meets an opponent which is more than its match. The thing that's being talked about there is grace. When evil is met with grace, the sting of evil is drawn. It meets its match. Grace is such a powerful thing. Now, I don't know about, I'm not sure, where's, where's our daffodil got to? Yeah, oh, brilliant, it's made it all the way round. Fantastic. Thanks, Rochelle. So, being good, kind, lovely, gentle Christian folk, I gave you a beautiful, delicate flower, and it's, it's looking a little bit, some of you have been, been very good, you know, you haven't held back, it's looking a little bit sorry for itself, it's still looking in pretty good nick though, to be honest, you're all so lovely. But you see, the point of this is because we start life as something beautiful, God's created us and he appreciates us and he loves us. But as we go through life, God knows that there are times when our petals get... Oh. There are times when our... I have no idea what's going on there. Um, <laughs> there are times when our, our petals and everything else, our beauty is marred. That's life. God doesn't expect any one of us to turn up at the gates of heaven looking beautiful as we were when we were first taken out of the, that arrangement. Instead, he doesn't even expect us to come looking like this. He knows that we're going to go through life, and to be honest, we're going to be a lot more battered. There's not going to be a thing of beauty. No matter... How many times I try, if I turn up with a bunch of these, Joe is not going to be impressed. But you know what? God is. When we bring ourselves before him and we say, this, 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 this thing of beauty, I'm, I've turned it into this. This is who I am. I've got my regrets and I've got my hurts and I've got my disappointments and I've let people down and I've, 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 I've spoken the wrong words that would have upset and offended you and I, I've, I've harboured bitterness. The moment that we say, but now I want to let it all go. And Jesus, I want your grace. I want your forgiveness, your love, your mercy, your peace. I want to know you. God takes this, this thing which we, we might look at and say, it's fit for the compost heap. And he says, no, 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 no. No. This is beautiful. This, this thing, this is still a thing of beauty. And this still deserves its place amongst all the other things of beauty in the kingdom of heaven. Because God looks at us through the lens of Jesus, through the grace of Jesus. 
Grace is the most amazing, powerful experience for us to understand. It's the most amazing thing that we can share with other people. And it's the most amazing thing that we can receive from God. We're going to finish up just by watching a video. It's only a couple of minutes long. And the point I want to make here is that Bonhoeffer's argument here, he's not saying grace is something that calls us to bend over backwards and whatever the world does to us, we accept it and it's all fine because we love Jesus. That's not what grace is. Sometimes grace is tough. Sometimes grace is not what we want to do, it's what we, we have to do. Sometimes we encounter evil and every, every worldly response is saying, meet this with resistance, fight it, stand up and, 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 and meet evil with, with evil. React in a way the world's telling us to react. Seek vengeance. Bonhoeffer says, real grace frustrates evil to the point of, to the point of petering out. It draws the sting. It doesn't say everything's fine. It says, whatever you do to me, you're not going not, not to draw evil out of me. You're not going to provoke that response that you're looking for. Grace is tough. Grace is hard. You have to be an incredibly tough person to show true grace a lot of the time because it involves choosing Jesus over choosing the worldly reaction, and that is tough. And this video now, I'm going to stop talking, and we're just going to play this video. Um, and this is an example. It's from the, a man who lost his wife in the Paris attacks, Paris terrorist attacks from a few years ago. And he lost his wife, and he had a 17-month-old son, I think 17-month-old, um, and he put together this statement, this video, which I've always thought is one of the most powerful videos I've ever seen, and he refuses to be beaten by evil, and this is tough grace, and it's something I wanted to share this morning.
we will come back to this subject because it is wonderful. It is a wonderful and beautiful thing. But right now, we're going to spend some time in worship. We're going to find our green counters. We're going to think about those causes and the difference that we can make in the world. And then Steve's going to close the service afterwards.